Welcome to the Immigrant Voices Podcast Project. I'm Deb Bluestein, and I'll be bringing you the voices of the courageous people who've made the U.S. their home. In their own words, you'll hear about the lives and people they left behind in their native countries, their journeys here, their struggles and successes. You'll hear from parents of dreamers, dreamers themselves, undocumented to naturalized citizens, and everything in between. As a very young child, Perla came to the U.S. from Guatemala. As memories of her homeland faded, she learned the vocabulary of her new country while never abandoning the culture and language of her parents. Despite crowded living conditions and the ever-present threat of deportation, Perla's hard-working family persevered to build a secure home. Having completed her master's in social work, Perla, who is now a DACA recipient, helps other immigrant families to navigate their lives while she continues to dream of the day when she can come out of the shadows of her uncertain status, become naturalized, and to revisit the land of her birth. My next guest is Perla. So, Perla, how old were you when you came to this country? Hello. I was six years old when I first came to this country. And were your parents, was was your country war-torn? Did they flee? Were life-threatening conditions? What was the situation? There was no war at the moment, but financial issues Safety issues and concerns in our country were pushed my parents to, to leave our, our home and come to the United States. So financial instability and safety concerns. Do you remember anything from being six years old? Uh, anything about the journey? What do you remember about your house? Anything you remember at all? Our, our house wasn't too big. It was... It was a very interesting house. Yeah, it was two floors. And, you know, in, in the country where, you know, you have rooftops that are not even closed. They're just kind of like open. And I remember just playing a lot in the rooftop. We had a front porch, which was closed. Um, there wasn't much grass. It was mostly cement. But we were allowed to play there. It was safe. It was close. It was safe. It was a small home. It was a, let me say a four-bedroom, three-bedroom home. Uh, not a lot of space, but it, it just it was it was fun. And I have a lot of memories of, of that home. That's great that you can remember from when you were six. Well, you'll get back there someday. I hope so. It's still there. Boston to us was familiar. We had family members already established here for many years. And it was, we always got to visit. So Boston was familiar to my siblings and I. However, when we stayed longer than we were used to, uh, from what I remember is feeling confused, feeling lost, mm-hmm. and missing my my home in Guatemala a lot. Uh, you remember that. Yeah, so I remember You have that. those memories from six yes. years old. Okay. Yes. Anything else that you remember that stayed with you? from that age adapting to you know a new country was very difficult so language barrier was 
it was difficult. I couldn't really communicate with other kids my age unless they spoke the same language as I did. Um, I remember being in Boston for co- first couple of months in school, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't really find friends that I could play with just because they didn't speak the same language as I did. So I remember that very clearly. Did your parents encourage you to learn English, or did, or was it sort of uh, there a cultural imperative to to keep speaking the native language? At home, yeah, we always spoke Spanish, so. My parents always encourage us to continue to speak Spanish. We were outside. They encourage us to speak English. They said both languages were going to be very important. Back then, many years ago, schools in the Boston public districts, they were bilingual. So they had separate classes for kids who had just recently arrived um, and spoke only Spanish. But it was still hard to kind of adjust to it. What what so, what made it hard? I guess the different types of Spanish as well. We were used to speaking a certain way, certain accent, and even though the other kids spoke Spanish, I I still couldn't understand what they were saying. Especially families from like Puerto Rico, kids from the Dominican Republic, or kids from Colombia. Their accent is so different, and I didn't know that other people spoke different types of Spanish. If that makes sense? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did it all kind of congeal for you, though? I mean, after a while, were you able to understand other dialects and other versions of Spanish more easily? I think as I was very fortunate to come here as a child because as a kid, you know, kids adjust to environments very quickly. And although it was challenging, you know, we were able to to get used to it and feel comfortable with other kids and learn about different cultures from people's own perspective compared to like a book that we used to learn in our own country. Must have been challenging though. Would you, do you remember like making your first friend who was American who, who didn't speak Spanish? I remember just making up words in English and hoping they would understand me. <laughs> Can you give I me an example? That. Was it Spanish? <laughs> It, I was saying Spanglish or maybe some other language that I invented. You know, I think asking kids to like play with me, like, do you want to be my friend? I would. I can't remember the exact words, but I remember their faces. And going back many years ago, almost twenty years ago, it, I could just remember how they would look at me and be like, "Like, what are you saying?" And <laughs> continually like asking me to repeat myself. And it it was hard. It caused me to to be very anxious. I was like, am I doing something wrong? And I was, but as a child, I didn't know. In what ways has it helped you being bilingual? As far back as you can remember, right up to today, how has being bilingual helped you? Being a child who had to help my parents when we went out to the stores, when we went to doctor's appointments, whether it was my own doctor's appointments or my parents, um, going to your local grocery store or anything like that. It helps me advocate for my parents and support them when, you know, this places didn't have people to support them in their language. So it helped me. It also, with the same, it also caused me to feel a lot of pressure because I was alone and my older siblings, we were the ones translating things that were, were really for adults. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it put us in this weird position of, 
a bigger authority than our parents because we could understand English and they couldn't. So you were kind of the adults in a way. Yeah. How many siblings? There is five of us. Whoa. What are the ages of, of your siblings? What were they when you came? The oldest one, which is before me, she was about seven. She was like a year older than I am. Mm -hmm. The one after me, she was about, she was a little younger. So she was about five. And my brother uh, was about nine months old. He was a baby. And then my youngest sibling was born here in Boston. Is everybody bilingual? Everybody is bilingual. That's fantastic. In what ways has your status as a dreamer been an obstacle or an asset or both? If you can tell me a little bit about that. I think it's definitely been both. An obstacle has been that, you know, not knowing what my status was until going to college and figuring out that my journey was not going to look the same as everybody else's and not understanding why. Um, and it was all because of eight numbers that I did not have, which was a social security, mm. which wouldn't allow me to qualify for financial aid or really any financial support or even apply for a job. Then the DREAM Act was passed. The DACA was passed for students on June 2015, which that was a big, big difference. It made a big, big difference in our life. So, In what ways? Being a DACA recipient allowed me to work and also allowed me to be able to apply for a driver's license or a driver's permit. I guess in a way it gave me some type of freedom and security that my freedom wasn't at risk anymore. How about the freedom of your parents? That's still, my parents' freedom is still something that we kind of juggle every day because they still don't have a status. And it's very difficult. It brings a lot of, you know, in times like this, during this pandemic, you know, they, they can't really qualify for any, you know, unemployment benefits. There's, they're almost like not, not noticed or acknowledged as hardworking people, individuals who work two jobs well, a week. Are they still working even even during the pandemic? Unfortunately, not. Not at this moment, no. Oh, they're not working now. No, they're not. So, so they're undergoing a, a big hardship, I would think. Oh, yes. Yes. And as of being a dreamer is that a lot of people recognize the struggles that undocumented students go through. And they see our, our efforts. They see that we want a better future. And... I was very lucky enough that where I attended college, my, my master's, not my undergrad, my undergrad, I was just another regular student who had to pay lots and lots of money to go to school with no financial support at all. Mm. And that was a state school for my, for my graduate school. It was different. People recognized me, saw my hard work and were able to support me because they knew that I wanted this really bad and without the own institution's private scholarships, I would have been able to pursue my dreams. That's fantastic that you were able to finance it. How about the asset of 
in terms of the kind of work that you do, I, I, I would think being bilingual and also having an insight into the plight of immigrants, just kind of being in both worlds, is, it's got to be an advantage. It's definitely being bilingual has allowed me to work with so many individuals who have similar or different backgrounds as I do. And being you know, a clinical social worker, you work with many students whose parents are undocumented, who they themselves have been undocumented. So you get the best of both personal experience as well as, you know, as a job. And you understand both and it's, it's living the best, best worlds. And because of my personal experience, I am now able to provide just a, even more supports to those people who are going through similar things as I am. Well, how does trust figure into your work? Trust is very important. It's all of my work. If there's no trust in between the client and myself, which you know, most of the time I'm working with kids, mm. then there's really no, no work that can be done. If there's no trust between the parents of the children that I work with, it can become very difficult. I always agree with it takes a village to raise a child. And if there's no trust between two adults who are working to support a child, then there's really no support that can be given to that, to that kid. It's hard. It's almost impossible. I would think that your status as a dreamer and being bilingual and that, that the trust is almost, I don't know, I'm sure you have to earn it, but that it's, it's more automatic that because you're not an outsider. Yeah, another one of all of us. Do you have early memories from your the country of your birth? And how old were you when you realized that your status as a dreamer was going to have an effect on your life and your future? I know you said earlier that when you got to college age, you became more aware of it. But if you think back a little bit, What's your earliest memory of getting a sense that you were different, you know, other than, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you acquired language pretty quickly at the age of six, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have any accent, obviously. So I'll just ask that again. Do you have early memories from the country of your birth and how old were you when you realized that your status as a dreamer was going to have an effect on your life and your future? A lot of my memories from my country of birth just require, you know, our own home that we had, which to me was, was, was fun. A lot of fun memories, life in, in my country was very different. It was always warm. We were always outside playing. If we were had to be inside, it was because it was time to eat dinner or go to bed. I just have a lot of like, as a kid, a lot of just playing. That's all I could remember. <laughs> More of a sense of freedom. Did that change when you came here? I would say yes. We didn't have a home. We lived in an apartment, two bedrooms. Most of the our our years, first years here, we had a share. It was a two-bedroom apartment. My uncle lived in one bedroom, and basically my parents and my 
myself, including three other siblings at the moment, we were only four. Um, we had to share one bedroom. Oh. So things were very different. There was no backyard. If you wanted to go play, you had to go to a park. How long did that last, that living situation? I want to say, say maybe two years, three. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. There was a lot of us in just one bedroom. It was, it was too much. Are there any particular incidents that happened during that time because of the crowded circumstances that you can recall, like a particular day, particular event, or something that was either traumatizing or something that brought joy? I, you know, either one or both. I think having my uncle around it was fun when we got to go check out like different places you know we got to do a lot of like fun activities outside the home but when it came to like being inside the home in a very tight to bedroom apartment it was uncomfortable Uh, we were kids and we always wanted to be running around and playing um, as any other you know regular kid would want to do and and I think there was times where our uncle it was like a little bit hard for him to understand that did you all eat together Mostly, I believe it was mostly my own family, like my parents with my siblings. So you kind of did shifts in the kitchen kind of thing? Yeah, kind of. I feel like a lot of the times my uncle would spend a lot of time eating out. He was young. Uh, but when it came to like him focusing on his own personal stuff, I think space-wise, as a kid, you're making noises, you know, you're running. You're playing, and I think sometimes adults required, you know, just some quiet downtime. And as kids, of course, it was hard for us to understand that. Aside from the, quote, American dream, what human dream have you had for yourself in your life? And uh, have you accomplished it? And what are your dreams today? I feel like one of my biggest accomplishments that I've one of my biggest dreams that I have accomplished so far is, you know, pursuing my master's degree. For me, that was just a dream. It wasn't something that I thought I would ever be able to do. And now I can say I did it. So that's accomplished. Another dream is being able to buy my parents their own home in, here in Boston and have them financially secure so they don't have to worry about working so much. So my dream is to give my parents a, a good life and and continue to provide for them. Are your siblings, do they share that same dream? Yes, they do. They do. I feel like our parents have given up their own home back in our country, and you know, this is the place they call home now. They, they love Boston. They admire everything about it. They talk about it like if they were born here. And I think it's only fair that they get to have a home in a place that they call home. Any leads about where you're looking to buy a home or is it about saving the money or what, what stage are you, is your home search for them at this point with your other siblings? I think that we always just dream of having like a lo- like a home in Brighton. Brighton has always been the place where we've lived and just having a home in the Brighton area, their backyard, uh, 
something that we'll be able to financially afford as well. But make it, we always say, if, if you're going to do it, do it good and do it big. <laughs> if not, just continue to save it. So we know that when we want to buy a home, it's something that's going to be, you know, it's going to be big. It's going to be comfortable. And we want something really nice. So we're in the process of, right now, we just have ideas. Financially, we're still not there yet. But in a couple of years, I that's my dream, to get my parents at home, along with my siblings as well. Yeah, great dream. When you compare yourself to people, kids your age who haven't had to worry about their status, people who are, you know, um, citizens automatically, do you think that they have any concept of, of what you've done or the sacrifices your parents have made? Not a lot of people understand. Why, I remember why I, is that? I remember just having conversations where people would ask me, why do you still live with your parents? Or, you know, what do you hope to do? And my, what I've always said is I want to be able to have a home where my family can live, whether it's a two or three family home and have them live upstairs and I live downstairs. But I want to make sure that I, when I first buy a home, it's a home for my parents. And a lot of people don't understand that. They say, well, why? Why? Why can't your parents do it? And my story is my story. So it's not something that I like to share a lot with everybody because of the fear that not a lot of people have been able to understand in the past. So they don't understand that my parents sacrificed everything. They came here with just the luggage and us. And they don't understand the sacrifice of living, of my parents leaving their home. And coming here and just starting from nothing. So because of your status, you've, you've never actually been to Guatemala since you were six, right? That's right. That's right. Any desires to, to get there? or Are you feeling like it's hopeful that you'll be able to go on a track to citizenship? What, what are you, what's your gut say right now to you? Um. My one of my dreams has, has has been to go back to Guatemala and just visit all their beautiful places. I dream about Guatemala all the time. Um, I know that sounds silly, but I can just imagine like the volcanoes, all the beautiful places that friends or even family members talk about, and I want to be able to experience that. Just experience my own culture um, in my home, and yeah. So I I, I hope to do that one day path to citizenship right now with this current uh, administration is it's a little difficult to look at just because there's a lot of you know I, I don't want to say hatred but almost like dislike against undocumented immigrants and so you feel like there might not be any hope for it other people have taken different paths to become a citizenship whether that's like you know, marrying someone they love, marrying a citizen and exchanging their status from a DACA recipient to now, you know, legal resident or U.S. resident because there are other ways, but it's not, it, that way does not fit for everybody. Right. Do you have, do you have friends who've done that? I've, I've seen people, you know, find their husband um, or their wives and fall in love and got married and now they're able to travel anywhere they want but 
um, for me, my time hasn't come and I'll be waiting for that time, but I hope that something else comes before them <laughs> as well. <laughs> I would like for something else to come before them. <laughs> Marriage to me is a little scary. <laughs> yeah. How old are you now? I'm 27. You're 27. Wow. When you were thinking about this interview, what were some of the things you wanted to be sure to, to tell me? When I first thought of, of this project, I thought about the many voices that have not been heard or even my story. And I just wanted to be able to share it and hopefully inspire somebody who may be in, in pursuing their dreams at this moment, who might be a DACA recipient or maybe have no legal status at this moment, is just to inspire them and let them know that dreams do come true if you pursue them mm -hmm. and if you try your best. And... And that undocumented immigrants are very resilient. And I hope that for someone who has no idea what I've been through or who would never probably understand what being a DACA or undocumented immigrant means, I hope that through my story, they're able to, to just, just hear what it's like. Well, I really appreciate your being willing to, to share it. So what is exactly the status of the Dreamers right now in May of 2020? What, what's the situation? Right now, I know that our status is for about every two years we have to renew it. Dreamers can continue to, to renew their status even through this pandemic. Um, and so far, there has not been put a stop for anybody to continue doing that, to continue to renew their, their permit to work and be able to travel within the United States. Other than that, there's really not much. And you, you still play, you, you pay taxes too, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> but you don't, you don't have a social security number. At this moment, yes, now I do. Oh, After DACA was given, it allowed us to have a social security number to work and be able to apply for an ID or a driver's license. That's, that's great. Yes, but our social security cards are very different compared to a U.S. citizen or a legal resident. In what way? In a way that it says... This is, it's, it's printed on the social security number. It says, this is only for work permit. It does not authorize any uh, permit to the United States. It's just a work permit. So there are some benefits that we may qualify and some benefits that we definitely won't qualify at all. I think the average American has no concept of the, the pressure that you live under. It's every day. <laughs> every day. Every day. I asked you a question earlier. I don't think you answered it about like when were you first aware that you were different from your classmates and that mm -hmm. that that your status was different. Yeah. I know you said it was it became extra clear when you went to college, yes. but it must have you must have been aware of it before that. Oh yeah. And as you ask this question of, you know, when did I first become aware, a picture of my aunt driving 
on a Friday afternoon just popped in my head. And I remember that day clearly. She was driving. She also doesn't have a status. And she would drive us around a lot with our cousins, going to get ice cream, you know, movies. And I remember one time she was stopped by a cop and was asked for her for her ID, you know, her driver's license, passport, whatever she had. And I remember as she was pulling over for the cop to stop us, she she was very worried. Mm-hmm. She continued to tell us that she loved us all. Mm-hmm. As though she might get dragged away. Yes. Mm. How old were you then? Sorry. I was about 11 years old, I want to say. So like in sixth grade or something? Yes. Wow. And, you know, I can't understand why. What happened when they pulled her over? Yeah, she, you know, I remember us laughing in the car. She had done nothing wrong. She just happened to be pulled over. I think one of her lights or something was wrong. I can't remember. They asked her, you know, for any identification. She didn't have anything but her passport from Guatemala. And, you know, the cop at first was, was very rude. And I know that cops have a job to do, but I also think that we're all humans. And we should be talked as humans. And I remember just him yelling at my aunt saying, where's your driver's license from the United States? And continuing to ask her that. And as she was becoming more nervous, she said, I don't have one. And um, then he stared at all of us in the back. Couldn't imagine what kind of faces he saw because we all froze. It was like a moment of just everything froze around us. We couldn't hear anything but him talking. Hmm. And he looked at us. His tone of voice changed and you know he warned her he said I don't know specifically what what he said to her I think at that time I was just so traumatized and it was kind of like that freeze flight mode and to me I think I froze just remember seeing his lips move and tell her something and he let us go then when we went home she explained to us that we have to be careful with cops we always have to be good, that we can't do really bad things because, you know, if, if we were to do bad things, the cops would send us back home to Guatemala. And we basically became afraid of cops. Every time after that, I remember seeing cops everywhere. It was, it was traumatized. And it was like reliving that same experience again. They're going to take me away. They're going to send my family back home. So cops were as... My siblings, my cousins, and I have always been very traumatizing. Has that changed at all? Have Have you met any any law enforcement people who have been nice to you, who have maybe been immigrants themselves? We met a very nice cop, and I'm not sure how we met him, but I think it was at an event. I can't remember how, but he he was very nice to us, and I think. I was when I was probably 17 years old. So I guess my fear of cops, or at least my perspective of the bad guys, which sounds funny, but the bad guys to me were the cops. Right. Kind of changed until I was 17. But even when we're driving, even with people who have 
you know, are, who can legally drive in the United States. That's still a fear that lives within me um, because I know that other family members who are in the car might not have a legal status. And I don't know if an officer will ask all of us for our status. So mm-hmm. cops to me are, are so scary, as I would say, as a child. They were scary. And as an adult, what do you have any kind of personal practice or meditation or anything that you do that that offsets some of this stress? Any you know anything that calms you down when you worry about these things? I mean, are you involved with, with any group of other DACA people or have any personal hobby or something that? that you do that helps you not have to think about all these things? When I see cops, whether I'm on the street or whether there's like a traffic stop with someone that has nothing to do with us, I do a lot of like breathing, just taking really, really deep breaths and just to help myself calm down so I won't be afraid when I see cops. In general, as a DACA recipient, within on... You know, on, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. A way that I cope with this is, is doing, I go on a lot of walks. I love the nature, so just being out there helps me clear my mind. But this is something that's always on my mind every second of my life. Hmm. I, you know, because I have my parents, I have family members, I have clients' parents. So this is something that I think a lot. Right, it's not not just person, per, not just personally, but professionally, <laughs> you're 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 swimming in it all the time. Oh yes, all the time. Yeah. Wow. And there's an amazing student immigrant movement group in Boston, and a couple years ago, maybe four years ago, maybe five now. I attended a retreat in Boston that they had. And they are the most amazing individuals, people who were younger than me, people who were older than me, people who were the same age as me, uh, leading these groups to inform, you know, to get allies, to get people informed about what it means to be undocumented, how to support them, just to get them educated. And I went in, I went in as an ally because I had shared with one of the team members that I was still afraid to share my status hmm. and the work that they do is incredible these people work every second of their lives to make a difference in my life and one day I hope to do that I hope to be able to continue joining them and helping them um, but it's hard it's hard to come out to everybody as you know someone with an unsteady status at this moment because I know that it's not just me, it's my parents as well, and that can put their life at risk. But I hope one day I can join them and continue to advocate for millions of children like myself. Mm. So you're saying belonging to that makes you a, a little bit more visible, which puts your parents at risk? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Can, can you share the name of the organization? It's called the Student Immigrant Movement, ZIM. Zim, S-I-M. Student Immigrant Movement. And and that it's just for Boston or is it international? Is it national yeah. movement? 
It's a national movement through the United We Dream. That's great. Mm-hmm. And I just know that the one in Boston is called the Student Immigrant Movement. Wow. Well, this has been really good. I could talk to you for hours, I think. <laughs> but I just wanted to let you know, and you may be aware of this, that the gardener had a GoFundMe page, and they've raised several thousand dollars, and they are they are trying to find out people in the gardener community or extended community who need help, either food that have their rent paid. You know, they they want to give money or gift cards or something out to people. So talk to your parents if if you think they need some help. Don't let their pride get in the way because the money needs to be spent on people who need it right now during this, you know, COVID-19 pandemic. Anything else you want to tell me? You just have a different, I mean, you, you have a different youth than typical Americans. You just, uh, you know, you so having to be so responsible and so much respect for your parents and admiration for them. It's, it's very different from the typical American who's rebelling, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ever have friends who are kind of on this rebellious thing, and you you talk to them to to let them know that they should appreciate what they have? Have you ever had a conversation like that? I have, and anything you want to share about? I would just say, living this American culture is so different. Because once you turn 18, everybody becomes independent. You do what you want. Your parents can't tell you much. And being in the Guatemalan culture is totally the opposite. You can be 55, and if you still live under your parents' rules, it's your parents' rules. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. And um, a lot of the times, I'll tell them, oh, you have to be grateful. Or, you know, why don't you sacrifice this for, you know, your parents? And so many different perspectives and you know you I can't did force they, him to think the way that I do. Do they listen to you ever? I would say they'll take it into consideration, but most of the time, you know, they're used to what they're used to, so they'll follow what they want. Mm-hmm. Well Perla, thank you so much for sharing so much with me. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. This is amazing. I hope Perla's story has given you a window into the life of one dreamer who, despite her uncertain status, has been able to forge an independent life and career without ever abandoning her commitment and loyalty to her parents, the culture of her birth, and the passion to be a contributing citizen of her adopted country. Thank you for staying with us right to the end of this episode. A special thanks to music consultant Michael Bluestein, who provided royalty-free music as background for each of my guest episodes. The Immigrant Voices Podcast Project is the brainchild of Michelle Duval, the program director at the Adult Education Program at the Gardner Pilot Academy in Alston, Massachusetts. You can learn more about the English for Speakers of Other Languages courses at our website, 
G-P-A-E-S-O-L dot com by emailing Michelle Duval directly at m.duval at live.com. Without the funding of Charles View, Inc. and the support of its executive director, Joanne Barber, this project would never have been possible. And a big thank you to all the guests who participated in the series of interviews. We say thank you and do come back to all my listeners. Do come back for the next episode. Thank you.